Welcome everyone to Goddard in the World podcast. Goddard in the World podcast is a project of the Goddard Alumni Council, where we highlight Goddard alumni accomplishments out in the world. Our guest today is John Olam. He is an MFAIA graduate. I met him, he's here in New York, uh, where I am, and I met him through the regional chapter, New York, New York City chapter. Um, the first time I met him, he came out to dinner, uh, me and a former alumni council member, Dachin Albero. We had organized this dinner at this Ethiopian restaurant in Midtown. And he and his husband, Jim, came to dinner there. And yeah, it was like super easy, super fun, uh, very, very relaxed. And um, Ethiopian food, you eat with your hands. <laughs> so, cool. You know, it's like, sorry. Hey, Casey, sorry, I like forgot to intro you. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, um, you guys know by now, that's Casey, Casey Corona, my co-host. But um Ethiopian food that you get the in injera. I'm probably fucking up that pronunciation, but um, <laughs> like the like sourdough pancake, and they put these savory, wonderful things on them that have been like braised and stewed mm. and all of that, and then you just kind of grab. <laughs> My stomach is rumbling. <laughs> close to lunchtime, Amanda. Yes. I know it is close to lunchtime, um, but like you grab a little piece of the of the injera and take a little bit of the like chickpea or whatever stew. Um, there, there were vegetarians in the group, so I think we might have all, all done vegetarian. And and it's shareable, like you you mm. share it as like a group, like so. So it's pretty interesting <laughs> thinking about that right now. Like I haven't thought about that in a while, but like thinking about sharing food with strangers at the time um, <laughs> and, and with your hands, I'm like, ooh, all of this is kind of creeping me out a little bit. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but it was a lovely bonding experience when um, when I met. John and and his husband Jim. Yeah, like how can you not have an amazing sort of bonding experience when you're eating food in that sort of cultural way <laughs> and the taste buds and like you're sort of, sort of connecting. It's going to really give you a real sense of immediate sort of um, connection to the mm -hmm. other people. So that sounds wonderful. And, and I've never had Ethiopian food. The only experience I even know about what you're talking about is from a Simpsons episode, I think. But oh, sure. it sounds yeah, but it sounds. It, it, of course, everything has relayed back to the Simpsons episodes. But you know, um, it sounds like a wonderful. <laughs> Simpsons did it. Yeah. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sounds sounds like a wonderful experience. John is uh, a breath of fresh air and life, and there's so much energy, and he's so exciting. Amanda, mm -hmm. um, he must have been such a joy over that dinner to talk to, and and you knew we had, we had to have him on on the podcast for sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's he's just. <sighs> He's, a, he's an incredible artist and an incredible community builder, and he lifts up other artists in, in a way that is very uh, Goddardy, but like very, um, I don't know, I don't know exactly how to say it, but like inspiring. Um, it's his House of Olam, which we talk at length about, um, is, is all about giving people a space to show their art and to like be in community with each other, which is, which is really incredible. The second time I met him, I had gone to like this gala at, that he, for his 
organization, Olam Art. And um, it was so cool to like see like he he had rented this like floor of a studio and there were different events and like like art events and things going on in every single corner of that like floor in Chelsea or wherever it was. And I'm like, this is so cool. You can just kind of like wander and like see a poetry reading or like look at like a gallery and everything is for sale. And like, you know, like it was just like such a cool event. And he had a lot of Goddard artists there like that, that he, that he had made um, like friends, friends with like through the MFA program, uh, MFA program. So yeah, um, it was, it was awesome. And, it makes and a lot his of interviews sense. Great. Yeah. 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 It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. John is, um, uh, he's, he's working in so many mediums with so many people as an artist, uh, continually that that would be a, a really fun and energetic and sort of live, you know, I just, I feel life when I'm around yeah. him. And I think he, he talks about that a lot of his poetry and that mm-hmm. kind of work, you know, and, and it's really interesting, um, the journey that he's been on and continues to be on. Absolutely. So without any further ado, please enjoy our interview with John Olin. Welcome everyone to Goddard in the World podcast. Today our guest is John Olin. He is the Artistic Director of Olin Art Prismatic Productions Incorporated since its inception in 2003. He is also the curator of the House of Alam found on www.alamart.com. John's internal landscapes methodology speaks to helping f- people find their most authentic expressions via drawing and writing and movement exploration. He has been teaching his revolutionary metho- methodology since 2000. John received his MFA in Interdisciplinary Art from Goddard College in 2014 and his BFA in Ballet from Texas Christian University. John is the author of the books Internal Landscapes and Dark Matter, and there have been five documentary films created about him and his work. He lives in New York City with his husband, Jim. Welcome, John. How are you today? I'm great. Good to hear from you. Good to hear from you as well. You mentioned in your bio that you created a methodology, Internal Landscapes. Can you tell us a little bit about it and how it came to you, how you teach it? Sure. It started with, you just said about my BFA in ballet. I'd been dancing for, that was my undergrad work since, well, I was dancing on a cruise ship in 99. And then when I came to New York uh, in 2000. It came out of my work in ballet, my work in contemporary dance and people being too stuck in technique, uh, Mm. people being bound instead of it being a freeing place. And I started working with um, a Jungian analyst named Sylvia Brinton Pereira. She's really my mentor. And I really got interested in archetypes. And um, I was, it started going more into movement healing. And I'd choreographed, I'd been making my own work since 2002. And I had a large body of work by the time I'd gotten to Goddard. And I really started being interested in how people would move in a more authentic way. There is in Jungian psychology a thing called authentic movement, but I found that um, too loose in the sense that I'd come into contact with actors who'd work with me who were into method acting, and they they would say, I want you to bring up a memory of your own to use in this scene, per se. But the dangerous thing about that was you'd leave somebody raw. Mm -hmm. So I had to develop a way of 
grounding people. And what I did in internal landscapes was I would, when I have private sessions with clients, I would, they'd write free writing for like three pages and I wouldn't tell them what to write. And then I'd say, or draw it and I'd say circle three entities that came up for you. Don't tell me what they are. And then kind of, where is it in your body? What color is it? What vibration is it? And it, and it started taking off from there because a lot of people who've worked with me, I started having clients who a lot of them came to me. I saw them in my class when I was teaching a ballet or a contemporary class and they had trauma, PTSD, they had sexual abuse and there was blocks in their body that I could see. Mm-hmm. And when somebody has trauma, sometimes words don't really connote the experience. And they found working with me in internal landscapes very powerful in that they could kind of manifest it and make new choices out of it. So that's that's when I came to Goddard. I was right in the midst of that. And that's when I kind of formulated my methodology in my book. And it was a really good time for me because it was I had so much choreography, I had so much research, and I really had I really kind of wanted to define what makes Alamart unique, what makes internal landscapes unique. It was at a place where I could kind of coalesce all that. Mm, that's amazing. So John, you and I met uh, several years ago uh, when I was uh, starting up the New York City chapter, uh, but I don't think we've ever talked about this <laughs> um, because Sylvia Britton Pereira, Descent of the Goddess, was one of my key texts that I learned at Goddard. <laughs> like, like oh someone, someone there gave it to me, one of my advisors. Um, oh, and who? Which advisor gave it to you? Oh, which advisor gave it to me? So, so I'm from the Individualized Master of Arts. It, it was probably Lisa Weil or Ellie Epp. Um, okay. okay, one of them. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I know. That's that. I mean, it's it's not a funny book. Um, but um, no, 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 no. It, she's a rock star. She's changed my yeah. life. She's amazing. Yeah, she's amazing. So, did you did you meet her before? Or, or? I am best friends with her daughter. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. Deborah Massell is the professor of voice up at the Crane School of Music. And when I was in 1999, I got a contract to dance on the Vista Fjord. It's a Cunard cruise ship. So every two weeks we left out of Venice and I was dancing around the Mediterranean. I was part of a, a dance program and I was mm. performing and on the ship was all Germans. And halfway through the contract, Deb Massell came on. She was an opera singer. Oh, wow. She and I became really, really close. And when I got off the ship, I got a private audition in Vegas. I hated Vegas, so I came to New York. Mm-hmm. I actually stayed in Deb's place, mm-hmm. and I was going through huge changes in my life, and she referred me to her mom, Sylvia, which is on the east side. Okay. And I've been seeing Sylvia since 2000, and she's just a visionary. She's. Um, do you, have you ever met her personally? I have never met her. No, I just her she's book now was amazing. In Burlington. She just oh. left because of COVID. She's in Burlington now. Um, She's she has five books. You read the the goddess, but also mm-hmm. the one you have to read is the scapegoat complex. That's really uh, poignant to what's going on in our society right now. Um, mm-hmm. Because her ex was uh, in the Holocaust. Oh wow! And it talks about people's need to scapegoat other people, and r- whether it was the Jews or the gays or um, women, whatever you know that. Hebrew mythology of scapegoating. That book will change your life. That's the one that I really recommend. Wow. Celtic Queen Maeve. Um, but she's really been my mentor and um, she's been an amazing influence on my life. And it's because of Deb that I met on the cruise ship. And uh, Deb and I actually worked together every summer. I used to go up to Smith College 
and teach the Alamar program as part of the summer programs. And I brought Deb in to be uh, a voice teacher and we were combining voice with breath. And we've still stayed in touch because she teaches voice students and I teach movement students. Mm-hmm. And we kind of combined our work together to talk about phrasing and where people hold their breath and where people hold their attention. So mm. I've stayed in touch with them and Sylvia's just an amazing person. She's really brilliant, very kind, very empathetic. You, you should see if you can meet with her in person. She's an amazing person. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Descent of the Goddess was was formative in in because um, I also did mythology okay. <laughs> as part of as, as part of my Goddard work, um, mythology of romantic love, and um, I was going through grief and um, yeah, her book was. Uh, very formative. <laughs> so, how, did, how did it help you learning? Was that the first time you learned about the goddess for yourself? The value of the dark goddess, dark yes. darkness. Yes, yes, that was the that was the first time I was like learning about all of that, and and that's what we're going through now in our society. Mm-hmm. I've been working really deep myself with Kali. Um, you know how every Wednesday I do a Zoom House of Alms support group, which is yeah. all of the people who've worked with us, and uh, Nina Massey is a performance artist who she's a community activist. She lives in Denver. And um, she's been working with us in the live performances like you saw, but also she's been in our support calls and she talks about how I hold space for people. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about Kali, who's in Hindu mythology, and she's considered this dark goddess. And a lot of people misunderstand her as dangerous or bad, but she's also talking about the beauty of winter and darkness and death, which we're all going mm-hmm. through right now. And Nina told me in Urdu from her language, she's from Pakistan, that Kali literally means her name literally means darkness. Yeah. And embracing that and the beauty in that and not being scared of it can be life-changing. Absolutely. John, um, I'm obviously just meeting you for the first time on this podcast, but um, you reflect so much of um, – of what, you know, buying so many Goddard students together. And what's interesting in the way you talk and speak and sort of work through and your background in this bio, I, I'm just interested in, you know, this idea that you're on this um, uh, cruise ship and you're doing this body movement and this dance and this sort of um, integrated um, element of, you know, movement. And then you're coming up with these creative ideas and, and what's happening in that, that constraining element of that movement and, um, and then how that's limiting those things and, and running into individuals who have had a uh, traumatic uh, stress disorder and, 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 and sexual abuse and those kind of things. John, can you just um, give us some more context about, you know, because as an educator and coming out of the ED, you program, I love to hear because I believe we're all learners, we're all teachers. And that clearly is part of who you are. And I hear multitude of things happening at once, both this depth of knowledge and learning and, and critical thinking, this relationship element that's existing, and then uh, connecting that to body and movement and dance. Are those are those an integrated sort of uh, synergy sort of element that occurred all at once? Was Goddard sort of a fusion of that, or was it something that you've known for a long time and just part of your soul and and unbounding and deconstructing of that? Like, where does that sort of stem from? Is that is that internally part of you? Because I believe that's in intrinsically part of all of us. And then given the space and the time and the meaning and the people and the purpose we're coming to, that continues to flourish when we're given that that, that ability to do so. Can, can you just talk a little bit about those different areas that in, in, infuse your sort of outlook and your work that you do, especially in teaching this work and, and kind of doing that since 2000 and what that means? I think for me, it comes from my own pain. It comes from my own trauma. Amanda was just talking about how she got to know the dark goddess. Um, 
I had a very traumatic childhood myself in that my dad was an alcoholic and I ended up marrying a man and I ended up going into dance. And my dad saw me in Kenyon College and he said, if I ever see you on that stage doing that shit, I'll whip your ass off the stage so fast. I mean, they were very violent, not supportive of me. Mm -hmm. And they gave me an ultimatum and I decided to go out on my own. And I believed in dance at a very core level because it was the first form of prayer in many cultures. It was sexual, it was spiritual, it was emotional, it was kinesthetic. And then with my experience with professional dance companies I'd been on, it got so about your body, about form, about shape. And it got, it kind of got really, really small and really um, elitist Mm. and I was really torn personally because I believed in it on a very deep level. And everyone's telling me, one, you're a man. Two, you're having sex with men. Three, you're um, choosing a field in art that my parents told me to do. So I left them in 1991, and I've never talked to them again. And mm-hmm. since in 98, I got my degree from TCU, my undergrad degree. And they threw it at me and said, oh, I hate the color because they were mad that it was in dance. Mm-hmm. So it was a very hard battle for me to dance. Um, I had to fight really hard for it, but I really believed in it. And when I got to Goddard, it wasn't that Goddard itself coalesced that. I think it was people listening to me. It was Erica Eden. It was Gail Jackson. It was Lantau who said, you have this huge body of work. And what I needed was somebody to kind of edit me and kind of I really wanted to refine internal landscapes. I really wanted to find what Olimart was because I was, I was juxtaposing myself to, say, you look at Martha Graham or Paul Taylor or Balanchine. I was looking at videos at Lincoln Center Library, mm-hmm. and they be, kind of become like a museum of shapes. And they're losing the internal connection to being in the studio with somebody and what their intent was behind the work. And the internal landscapes for me was like, I'm not getting. I can walk in a room and put a shape on somebody and say, you know, hit this line, do this shape, and I can do that. And that happens a lot in Broadway because it's you have to save time, you have to save money. When I work in internal landscapes, I've worked with people for four, six, eight months in depth, really, really deep. And for some people, it's it's hard and it's scary because they can't hide. And I think as time has gone on, I've worked with less people but deeper. Mm-hmm. And it's gone to a place of me even not being concerned about performance. It's about like working with the Goddard artists. It's not about even making a product. It's about the process. Mm-hmm. It's about um, getting away from educational educational models that are based on product that are saying, mm-hmm. "I want you to be here at this point." And I think what I'm doing is I'm learning with them instead of learning over them. Right. And I think that comes from um, listening. And I think the strongest thing about internal landscapes is listening. Um, but saying that it's also not improvisation either. It's not just do whatever you want to do. I actually take very specific things of what they're giving me. Talk about Sylvia Burton Prayer and archetypes. I work really deeply with those archetypes. I work really deeply with those shadow places. In Jungian psychology, they call that the shadow. Mm-hmm. It's a box or a place that you hide in yourself, a thing that you don't want anybody to see. And when somebody's ready, that's what we do. That's We do the shadow work and we move that. And And you talk about trauma or sexual trauma or being able to feel that, you know, um, is it wide? Is it tight? Is it bound? Um, mm. And it's been very cathartic for people, especially people that I've worked with who've had sexual abuse, because say, for example, you've had trauma and you go work with somebody and you say, okay, this happened, this happened, I was attacked, I was yelled at, blah, blah, blah. You're kind of giving somebody a narrative. 
but you're not really embodying the energy of mm. the trauma mm. or the the kinesthetic experience. But another thing beyond that is the book that changed my life was The Alphabet Versus the Goddess by Leonard Schlein. He's a neurosurgeon. And it, mm-hmm. and it talks about our society and how it doesn't value kinesthetic knowledge. It doesn't value mm-hmm. artistic knowledge. It values words. It values numbers. Mm-hmm. And our society is very based on quantitative, not qualitative. Right. It's based on, you know, okay, let me look at these numbers and let me look at these, these amount of students have hit this certain place in their career. Um, in the alphabet versus the goddess, he talks about the brain and he was looking at the brain and how it worked. And what happened was he said, if, if you go back to China, for example, the word for autumn is uh, like burning leaf and you get an image in your brain of that word. So you're getting an image as well as a word. When Gutenberg developed the printing press, he saw that the neurons started firing differently within the brain. People started reading left to right, and they were only focusing on numbers and letters. So that image-based, kinesthetic-based, goddess-based, if you will, thinking went away. So it's like, I was talking about Gemini being left brain versus right brain. What I'm doing is I'm getting into right brain being the leading force instead of the left brain. Yes, that's very interesting. Um That was also on my bibliography, the alphabet versus the goddess. I think oh, that um, change your life. Yeah. No, I mean I I did read it, but I don't remember a ton about it. But like one of the things that I loved about it was thinking about how how our brains changed from image what you're saying, what you said, like uh, image based to text based. And how that's not necessarily authentic to our lived experience, uh, yeah. because our experience is not just round, but <laughs> but I'm doing this thing with my hands, like or orbital, <laughs> and right, so. Right. But oh, I've worked in that language. I've worked in my language. I've worked in that language all my life. Mm. I've worked in that. And say, for example, you're moving your hand in a circle. Mm-hmm. What I do with a client, for example, is a work with rate, and rate is the. Um, the emotional expression tied to what you're feeling, like Lantau, Lantau Lam, she now teaches at New School. She looked at my work and she looked at all my videos online at Lincoln Center Performing Arts Library and all of my work, and she, she called it the language of emotion. Mm. And what I do is I'm kind of, say, for example, I take my hand towards you in a very slow way. That's very cautious. That's very tentative. I fear. If I do the exact same movement very fast, it could be anger. If I do it super, super slow, maybe it's calm. So what I'm doing is I'm talking about rate of the emotion. I'm talking about mm. the, the vibration. Then I also got into chakras. I worked with Carlos Luis Vargas from Ecuador and John McCurlin. I did a piece called Composition Number no. 1 that was all based on the chakras. And what I did was uh, there was no music. There was no clothes. It was all done nude. It was done outside in a huge field, upstate New York. And what I did was red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. And I worked with Carlos for three and a half months. I worked with John for three and a half months. And all I would say is, where is red? What is red? Where? And, and each person had a different experience. And I didn't put music on because music's so powerful. And I didn't give the power to the music. And then I added the Hindu festival of Holly, where they throw the colored dye up in the air. Mm-hmm. So at certain points where they felt the color, they would use that color and where they felt that color coming out of their body. And it was fascinating. It was seen as a movement art piece and it's online, but it was based on the chakras. It was based on where they felt those colors in their body. And it was kind of like there's an abstract painting inside of our body. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. This is it's this is so fascinating. Do, have have you always just um, looked at all of these kind of world traditions and mythologies and um, brought them into your work? Yes, I think I at Goddard I really got involved into studying witches because I got involved mm-hmm. in studying demonized divinities because I told you about my parents how traumatic Christianity was for me. People always tell me I'm going to hell. I really got interested in people that had been demonized, goddesses, uh, witches, um, people that had been cast out for not speaking with what society wanted. And I think I've come to understand, like with a lot of the witches that I've come to know, it's basically intention. It's meditation. All you're doing is taking the intention of the moon, you're taking the intention of your thoughts, and you're putting that into something. Mm. And that's what dance is. And I think um, dance in itself has gotten to be just theater performance, which is, okay, we're going to put a little piece on the stage, or we're going to say this little narrative. And that in itself has gotten boxed into instead of, I've done a lot of work outside, and I'm working with Fiorella Armando, who's from Uruguay, and she has this deep kinesthetic to dancing in the woods. And to her, it feels extremely spiritual. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it is. And I think it's very healing. It's very, it's emotional. It's spiritual. It's sexual. It's all those things. It's not just let me point your toes and you hit this number on three. And we put this little pretty piece on the stage. People clap. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking mm-hmm. about, you know, trying to find out where your river is, where your current is, where your flow is. And it's been really exciting for me and that people on these House of Alum Zoom calls that work with me, they take me to places that I didn't know we were going. And that's very exciting. And, you know, Amanda, you were talking about the dark goddess and Kali and being mm-hmm. scared to go to certain places in dark times. And I've actually gone to some really beautiful places with Nina and they talk about the winter goddess and I go into the woods and seeing those places where there is death, but then you also see rebirth, the things Mm -hmm. that you let go of, Mm -hmm. the things that you release instead of just a lot of it's fear. A lot of it is um, I've been told to think this way and I'm scared because I don't know what's past it. And I'm kind of holding a space to kind of sit with that and kind of move that and go, okay, well, that's not this, but it's something else. And it's, it's very powerful because it's, I mean, I keep saying witchcraft, but it's like, you're, it's like you're holding a cauldron. It's like you're holding a space for somebody in a safe space to kind of experiment. It's, it's like being with little kids and being allowed to play again, which some kids aren't allowed to do. And, and with adults, it's like, I'm giving you space to play. I'm giving mm-hmm. you space to, um, Try new things in a safe container. Yeah, it's it's you're 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 breaking out, John. Part of this narrative in your life's work and and what you're you're doing and, and teaching others, it, it appears and 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 you know, I think a lot of us have experienced this to to varying degrees, and maybe not all of us have pushed those limits as far as you, but you can be an inspiration that way. Um, those walls and those barriers, especially those who have been oppressed or marginalized or thought in certain yeah. ways that um, society or um, individual communities or whatever have a certain set, a law, order, whatever the case might be, boundaries, morals that sort of exist in this uh, framework. And you have been doing things that say, maybe this doesn't exist in, in the way we perceive it to be, or maybe it doesn't have the consequences, or maybe it's not the shame or the uh, sort of oppress oppressed element that that um, needs to occur in order to have a power dynamic um, that exists. You talk about that that 
you know, rebirth, you know, a death can exist there, but also something beautiful. Um, you know, it's really amazing to think about it in that kind of um, expansive sort of sense, you know, and, and limitless ways. But yet you say it's like a cauldron and, and held, um, like you have these techniques, these elements that sort of make sure you're heading in a direction. So I think that that sometimes is difficult uh, for individuals to sort of, and communities together, but we'll think about that when they're trying to expand and break through those kind of walls and, and think about things differently and, and colorful and, and um, sort of expressive. How do we make it intentional in a way that is both um, having purpose in a very, you know, a concrete, satisfied way, and yet making sure we're not limiting that and, and sort of um, enclosing that? So what are some of the techniques, some of the ways you do that? You, you said there's been lots of inspiration through your, your readings and your collaborations. So how do you, how do you hold that together where, where you, can, you can teach that in a way that both takes you as a, as a facilitator and a learner and those you work with into a new, new breaking of ground in these areas and yet still do it in an intentional way with outcomes or purposes that do require some quantitative, but, but based in the reality of qualitative sort of existence of this work, I guess, John. I'm so glad you said that because I think that's the difference of my work in that it's, you have to make it safe. And I think where I actually got this was from Shimmer, it's his pagan name. He's my witch friend who works up at Harvard, Stephen Robert Shutt. He's brilliant. And he said, when you have a lot of anxiety, go put your back to a tree. Or what I do is I put my face to the tree and feel the current of the tree and connect that to Mother Earth. And there was a funny experience. I went to his home for the first time. We were going to do this ritual. And I walked into his house and there's this living room on the left. There's a room on the right. And I walked in this room and I was like, oh my gosh, I get this huge rush of energy. And he goes, oh my God, how do you feel that? He, I said, I just felt this huge rush of energy. And he said, you're such an empath. You're picking up on people's um, the energy. That's where I do my rituals. And he closed the door, but I felt a lot of energy from there. And he's like, you're such an empath. You pick up on people's energy. And there was a book I read a long time ago about sexually abused boys and how men were taught about talking about their sexual, they were talking about their sexual abuse. And there was this little boy who was sexually abused and he was watching a TV show and he saw this frog get hurt. He got somebody smashed it and he felt it in his stomach very strongly. And I feel that too, like when somebody falls, I, I'm, I'm very kinesthetic and I'm very empathetic. And it could be from my own trauma. It could be from, um, I think honestly, what it is, is it's being a child of an alcoholic in that alcoholics lie. And I would walk into the room with my parents and there was these kind of visceral cues of like, they would say, this is what's going on. But the reality was something totally different in the air. And I think that formed me in being a kinesthetic person because people were lying to me constantly. So I didn't plug in the words. I didn't care what anybody said. Mm. Mm. I was like, look at what they do. Don't look at what they say. So I became more interested in the language of movement and what people, if you look at all my work, for example, there's a lot of men with their backs leaving. And every night when my dad would go to, to, go to bed, he'd say, I love you, but he'd walk out of the room and all I would see was his back. Mm. And he would say that because... His dad had just died and he felt very guilty. So, but as he was leaving the room, he would say that. So I'd hear him mumble it, but I was getting his back. Mm. So I wasn't getting kinesthetic love. I wasn't getting acceptance, but I think, so there was this juxtaposition between what was being said and what I was really feeling in my stomach. And as a child, I thought I was crazy. I was like, what is this? And I think what happened over time is I started to trust my gut. I can give you a really powerful one that happened to me. I was on a cruise ship. I was telling you I was dancing on the cruise ship and I, got with this first man that I was ever with, really fall in love with. And I was laying in bed 
and he was behind me and I saw the light under the door and I heard in my stomach, get up, get out. And I didn't listen mm-hmm. to it. I mean, I heard it really, really loud. And that, and, and I, every night I would hear that in my voice, like, you need to get away. You need to get away. And I literally heard it in my stomach, like my gut. And I think that situation got progressively dysfunctional over time. And I think from then on, I learned, I was like, I need to listen to that voice. I need to listen to my gut. And I think out of love and out of compassion for people in pain, I've helped people strengthen that muscle because our society doesn't do that. The patriarchy doesn't do that. New York City doesn't do that. It says make money. It says be successful. It says blah, blah, blah. I'm saying, listen to your gut, go into your box, find your root. And then going back to what Amanda said about Sylvia Brenta Barrera, she gave me this thing, which is fabulous. If I work with a client and a lot of pain comes up in this cauldron or this box that we're working in, she'll say, what you should do is go to the floor and lay down, put your head to the floor, take it out of your stomach and give it to Mother Earth, like let it come out of your body and actually exhale it down and out of yourself. Because a lot of times if you're empathetic, you're taking all of that in. You're constantly taking in people's pain or your own pain. And you can literally release it down through your stomach. So I started doing some biological research on the nerve endings in our gut. And there's some scientists out there who are saying that it was actually our first brain before our second brain developed. And that a lot of people felt very uh, guttural, visceral instincts in their stomach because there's a lot of nerve endings in our gut. Mm -hmm. Um, So you could take that literally and biologically, try and prove that scientifically, or you could just say having a gut instinct. And Mm -hmm. I think what I try to do with people is make sure at the end of every session that they ground. That's so, so huge. And I'm so glad you asked me that because if I've seen a lot of theater people bring people up into a place because they want them to act or have an experience and then they send them out in the street. And that's really dangerous because you could have somebody in PTSD and some triggers and it's like, you've got to help them ground it and release it. You can't just leave somebody raw like that. That's really dangerous. It's, it's really, to me, it's like, I see the session as like an arch. It's like, you come in, you get to know me, we go to this place and then we to me, to me, it's Mother Earth. It's giving it back to the Earth. If that image doesn't work for you, we find something else. But it's it's getting it down. It's giving it to Mother Earth instead of being up on our brains, Father Sky, which is a Native American Indian concept of Mother Earth, Father Sky, which once again is getting away from the Christian patriarchal concept of walking around being these brains, thinking all the time. But I think, but, but I think we're taught not to we're taught not to value that. We're taught that the body is less. We're taught that our brain is better, that logic is better. And I'm not saying don't be logic, but I'm taught, we're kind of trained that way. And that's why the alphabet versus the goddess is such a great book. Cause it's talking about the awareness of your, your, your body, your kinesthetic knowledge. Mm-hmm. I love what you said about theaters, people coming to you uh, or like, you know, when, when, when you have worked with theater people, I actually just wrote a play about that uh, that I had that I presented a couple of weeks ago. It was about an experience that I ha- had had or based on an experience that I had had when I was 15 and uh, going to a theater school that I won't name at the moment. I went there and in my one of my classes, the professor or teacher ha- had me basically crying in front of class and um, kept probing me in front of the class. Like, what is this about? What is it? What is it? Was it, you know, and I just at 15, I was 
not prepared for, for trying, you know, have, have poise, you know, like I didn't have any poise about it and I was really upset about it and I am currently 40 and it's still upsetting. (laughs) And so I wrote a play about it. And when I was pitching the idea for the play with, with um, some of my colleagues, a lot of them had had a similar kind of experience in, in particularly in theater school. And they, they said, that's great. You should totally take that on because it's, you know, it's, it's not cool for theater teachers to be like that. And then I had uh, someone ask me, well, is it not okay to ask students or, you know, your cast, if you're the director, um, for their stories? And I said, well, I don't really know, but I think it's important to have consent and to understand what what you're asking of them and then how to bring them out of it. But if you're not prepared for that, if you're not prepared for like the kind of PTSD, as you say, um, or the trauma of bringing up those memories, then yeah, maybe you shouldn't, maybe you shouldn't be asking for that kind of disclosure. That, that was the name of the play or no discontent was the name of the play, but like just you, you shouldn't be asking for personal disclosure if you are not yourself prepared. And if you're in a position of power and also not prepared um, to, to deal with the trauma of that. So I really love what you describe as keeping it safe for the people that are working. I like, you know, I, I did study a little bit about the archetypes. Um, and so I like having that kind of remove also when you're, when you're working with people um, because it, it's obviously very raw. Like my Goddard experience, my concentration was transformative language arts. And one of the ethical considerations that we all had to abide by was understanding that what we're doing is not psychotherapy and we, we shouldn't frame it as such. And because of that, there, there's the, you know, there are just certain things that, that we can and can't do in group settings, workshop settings, or even individually. Yeah. Well, I think I looked into dance therapy myself, but I didn't like that word. I didn't Mm. like, because when I work with people, people have something in their mind of what dance is, especially men. They're very scared Mm of it. It's like, oh, I'm not a dancer. Oh, I'm not. So I specifically made Alam Art about movement artists. And that was my word that I created. Internal landscapes was my word that I created. It was very specific on cho- on purpose. And I also think that movement art is psychic, it's emotional, it's sexual, it's spiritual, it's all those things. It's not uh, just dance. And also therapy. When you say therapy, people think, oh, you're going to fix me. Something's wrong. Right. And this goes back to Sylvia Brenda Pereira again, who she and I talked about me being an art journeyman. And we consciously made that decision of talking about, she said something to me, which really smacked me in the face, which I loved. She said, I'm, she, I said, I'm helping my clients. And I said, I don't want to use that word help. She said, don't think you're helping people. She said, I'm journeying with people. I'm walking with them on a journey and I'm mm-hmm. walking with them. And some people may leave me and some people may go another way and that's fine. And it's, and that's really helped me frame my brain in a sense of I'm walking with people and some people may leave and some people may go on another route and some people may stay with me. And I have to hold that space for the journey. And it's not about me helping, because when I say I'm helping, I have a goal in mind. 
That's a behavioral mm-hmm. therapist who says, okay, or, or a drama teacher says, I want you to cry and I want this reaction. I want you to give me a product. I want your trauma to be my product. I want to, <laughs> I want to violate you so that I feel better about myself. That's abusive. Mm-hmm. You know, instead yeah. of like, I'm going to walk with you on this journey and, and it's about your journey. It's not about my journey. And that's, I've had to learn a lot of self-discipline. I've had to learn a lot about giving it to the earth. I've had to learn about releasing. I've had to learn about holding my space mm-hmm. and letting people be who they are. And that's a lifetime of work. It's not about me having an agenda of mm-hmm. like, if you look at allamart.com, you look at my website, if you look at every single one of those rooms, every single one of those people is on a different place in a different medium on a different journey. Yes, I facilitate it. Yes, I help them. But it's not about, okay, John says do this and we're going here. I'm helping them going to their zone, into their room. And that's very different. And that's very conscious on my part that I'm not saying, okay, we're all going to be Martha Graham dancers and you're all going to move this way and you're going to dance for me. It's a very different mm-hmm. thing. And, and I think that comes out of my pain in dance that a lot of people wanted to manipulate my body to do something for them. And I was a puppet for them. And it hurt because I, I love dance dearly, dearly, dearly. I love it more than anything. I stopped talking to my family because of it. It's, it's something I really believe in. And there's very abusive choreographers. You said there's very abusive directors. Not all, of course. Yeah. But, but there's people that have this intention of like, I want to make this product. And I don't care if it hurts your body physically. I don't care if it hurts you emotionally. I mm-hmm. want this. And mm-hmm. I'm not about that. And I think it was, it was hard for me because... I talked to Sarah Moran about this. She's in the house of Alam and she, she, um, she's a flamenco dancer down in Dallas. Mm. And she got really hurt by a lot of people judging her body, judging how she moved. And she has a lot to say. And I think being going into goddess work, women loving their bodies in all different shapes and sizes. And she's been able to find a movement language that supports her spirit and her soul versus destroying her. And I think that's really, it's hard. I've seen a lot of women who, judge themselves really misogyny is so huge in this culture and it's women just Mm -hmm. beating their bodies trying to put themselves in boxes and Mm -hmm. men don't do that you know and it's Mm -hmm. it's it's terrible what and i think dance and theater can support or modeling can support that like okay you have to be this and you have to go on this journey and in internal landscapes i'm not doing that i'm saying okay let's let's find your own modality of movement or expression that's feeds your spirit in a way i love that the um the artists on Alam Art or House of Alam, um, are they are they all people who have worked with you previously? Like how 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 have they come to you? I'm thinking of the ones that are on there now. Um, <laughs> there's a lot. So. <laughs> there's a lot. Of, let's see, on. I know. I'm trying to think of who's on there now. Uh, yeah. Gloria. Have they all worked with me? Um, Amanda hasn't. Amanda Hancock is a Goddard graduate with me. She's a painter in East Texas. Okay. And she's just gone through this huge personal um, revelation. She's gone through addiction and recovery, and she's really pointing about it. She was just on a podcast. And she, I was trying to support her work. See, there's once again me reaching out to somebody that I'm just trying to help her get to new people, bring her into the community, give her support. Because I think there's a lot of artists that I've worked with at Goddard who they get lonely and they get frustrated. It's it's hard being an artist because you're going against the stream. You know, you're not like, okay, I'm not making all this money and I'm not, you know, climbing the corporate ladder. And and I think a lot of artists can get isolated and depressed. And I mm. consciously made this community where 
people were like, okay, every, every Wednesday at four o'clock Eastern time, I can get on the zoom and I can have my community support and I can touch in with what I'm doing or I can do privates with John. And it's kind of like a, a home. And, and mm-hmm. I think that comes out of, um, yes, me working with people, but also me realizing people that I went to Goddard with that I've stayed in touch with who are lonely out there doing their own thing. For example, Amanda just called me last week, Amanda Hancock, and we were celebrating Jess Pillmore, who just died last year, and we were all really sad, and she misses her. And, and she said, mm. I'm going to paint for her, and you dance for her. And on her birthday, I was dancing in the living room by myself, and she was painting for her. So that's mm. a way that we're keeping her spirit alive. And she, you know, it was we, we missed her, and she was one of our Goddard colleagues, and we were kind of revering her. Um, mm. And that was a beautiful thing that we could do because Amanda misses her and Amanda's in East Texas and I'm in New York, but it's something that we could do um, to hold each other up. Lindsay Metcalf was somebody who was um, two years on two semesters under me at Goddard. And she's an amazing print artist. She's now in Austin, Texas. Mm. We've done big collaborative projects together. Um, She's been doing this new beautiful art about printing about women's menstrual cycles. And it's really, really beautiful. And she and I have stayed in touch, but I know she feels very isolated. And um, Don DeMauro, for example, I brought him to my last show. He's an amazing artist, which people don't know about in Binghamton. And he has this amazing art space called the Spool Art Space. And I so wish people knew more about him. And I just have such passion for him. And I want to support him every way I can. And um, he's somebody that people should look up. And I just try to support him. I try to get him connected. And so, yes, there are people that have worked with me, but there's also people that haven't. And it's... um, and once again, it's not me, me being elitist going, oh, it has to be this way. And it's not that. It's it's me trying to support them. And that's also, um, for example, juxtaposing that to reality shows you see on TV where it's all about competition, people trying to beat the other person or be a better artist. And I think writing an artist is very subjective. And I think we all need to support our different missions. Because to me, it really feels spiritual. It really feels healing. It almost feels divine to me. It doesn't feel like, oh, I'm making a painting, oh, I'm making a dance, and then we're done. It, it, to me, it feels like it's a process. It feels like it's something very personal and private and, and sacred in a way. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. That makes so much sense, John. The way we think about learning and growing and being, you know, that existence, you know, absolutely. Um John, I'd love to hear where we're about 20 minutes left and, and you're so eloquent in all of your, your speech and all of your um, creative force and the relationships you've built and everything. But I definitely want to know, as I don't know that much about this work you're doing um, with this video book, um, Dark Matter. Can you talk a little bit about that as well, John, and the work you're currently sure. doing around that? I was terrified to do Dark Matter. <laughs> I was terrified <laughs> because, you know, I – because – I have to walk the walk. I mean, I can't tell people to do the work if I don't do it myself. And I think Dark Matter is more more me than Internal Landscapes, my first book. Because Internal Landscapes is very much, this is John's methodology, this is my work. And and that's valid. You can understand people don't know me, this is what he does. Um, somebody just bought it in Ohio this weekend and was trying to find out about my work. And that has its place. But Dark Matter is more poems that have been coming to me over covid what Amanda was talking about being in the dark space with the goddess. I have been walking in the woods every day at five o'clock. And when COVID started, I was terrified of losing Jim. I was, that was all I was thinking about because there was so much death and someone in our house uh, lost their brother to COVID. Mm -hmm. And I would walk in the woods and I would see the trees dying and I would see the smaller trees growing up 
and I would look into the dirt and I would look into the, the roots and I would see what's not being seen. The roots is where all the communication is between the trees, between the fungi and the roots and how they help each other. But that's not seen. And that goes, and it helped me, you know, my husband was walking around taking photos and it was like an exercise thing. But for me, it was very spiritual and very emotional. And every day, it's almost like a religious experience when I walk in the woods. And to me, it's the temple. It's the temple of the goddess, if you will, or Kunos or whatever. It's, it, to me, it was like, I'm going into church. I'm going to this holy zone. And I was seeing life process and death and rebirth. And it gave me a lot of peace. And so when I wrote Dark Matter, it was about the shit, the feces, the death, the pain in me. It was about my parents of birth, my sexual trauma, my sexual violence, um, pain I've had. But it wasn't, like, once again, it wasn't a narrative like, John did this, this happened, da 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 It was more the colors, the smells, the, where I felt it in my body. And then I juxtaposed that to... My husband sent out a photograph this year, which everybody loves about his photos, which are mostly flowers, trees, birds, whatever. I chose all the pictures that were like the rips on the bark and the dirt going in the ground and the shit that I thought was beautiful. And in, in art terms, it's called wabasabi, where the texture yeah. and the pain and the cut is what's beautiful. It's not this perfect thing. So in every part of the book, it's got my poem and then it's got this picture. It's got a poem and it's got a picture. And it's kind of this visceral tearing in the ground. But it was very, it was very healing when Amanda was talking about the goddess. It was about like, it was about that place where I was kind of letting it go. It was the place that I was kind of revealing my own shadow, my own darkness, shit, crap, whatever, whatever kind of dark matter. But I wasn't saying it was bad either. I wasn't judging it. I was kind of revealing it. And I was really, really, really scared to put it out there. And I talked to a publisher about it. I talked to people about getting it out as a published book. And I decided to do it as a video book. And I think more people have seen it that way because people have gone on to House of Alam when they're at home in quarantine and COVID and they're like, oh, I'm going to watch this video. Oh, I'm going to watch Gloria cooking. Oh, I'm going to watch this dance piece. And I'm going to read these poems. And, it, and in some ways people have been able to correspond with me in a more fresh way because they can write me one-on-one -on -one and they've emailed me or text me and said, you know, this specific line spoke to me and then I reread it. Or I've been able to have conversations with people about, oh, you know, that speaks to what I'm going through. Or I think in, in the quarantine, it's been such a blessing to me and that a lot of things have come up and, and it's been almost like a, a cleansing of being able to instead of running around in New York like a crazy person trying to do everything I've been able to release a lot and I think the dark matter is the the things that I let go of it's like Kali the dark goddess of being able to look into the cemetery and look into the death and look into the pain and the things that I've gone through but but also see the life death and rebirth the three cycles you know and, and see the the process of that and not being locked in fear and not being locked in Christian theology of saying this is a bad thing, but being able to see it as cyclical. And it healed me a lot personally. I was terrified to do it, but I'm glad that I did it. Well, that's wonderful. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you, John. That's, you know, I just real quick, just to um, reflect quickly on, on what you're saying in regards to that. Um, you know, that's, I think that's a natural tendency that, you know, fear or um, pause 
you know, comes out of, you know, as we're, we're in COVID and, and this kind of environment and what's happening with the world and collectively experiencing this and yet individually processing it as well and having these sort of um, myriad of tensions that are, devo- uh, you know, developing. When you, when you speak to that idea of letting that go, you know, I think oftentimes we want to let things go <laughs> in the time and the manner in which we want to let things go. And the reality is that's not always the best time in the manner in which that happens, right? And so the natural progress of that, John, that you're experiencing and, and going to that place that might be dark and challenging and coming out of that and that rebirth and that cyclical nature of having that sort of end and then begin anew, it's it's beautiful to, to listen to. And I think it's also natural and yet against some – Against some uh, societal pressures or organizational methods in which are set up for us to do right. So, be you know the idea this last year: be small, be be separate, be you know compartmentalize, you know just survive. You know that idea. I don't think that always lends to the idea of letting that go and understanding that sort of process. You know, I'll just mention real quick, you know, about my wife being a nurse in a nursing home and, you know, she's seeing all these stress and and trying to deal with um, the protection of the place and then an outbreak occurs. And, but, you know, I try to give her a larger perspective and contextual element going, you know, honey, this is the moment for you. This is your career might be defined always by the help and the service you cause, but this is one of those moments that's going to be larger and you're going to reflect and look back and, and what you're doing and, and, and trying to think about it in that bigger context and, and allowing that process sort of occur. I know she hasn't even dealt with having lost some residents already that were very close to her and the ones she was taking care of and just in the last couple of weeks. And there's going to be some trauma on that. But in the same way, if we can reevaluate and think about it the way you are, John, and, and processing that. And then being able to provide some kind of um, artistic expression for those who are still challenging and developing and, and coping with those kind of elements um, and providing that space. Uh, that's truly a gift you're giving. And so thank you for sharing that in that, in that context with us, because I think um, that can be very valuable for, for a lot of people um, currently in, in the circumstances we're in. I think I was thinking of your wife when you were saying that of dark matter. She's in the shit now. And if you look at shit as fecal matter that but it causes the trees to be reborn. And and I think even our society now is talking about mental health. And I don't even like that word because they mm-hmm. go, okay, well, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to come home and then I'm going to talk to my therapist for an hour or I'm going to do this dance. And it's also compartmentalized instead of just giving her a space to, okay, I'm going to draw this. I'm going to move this. I'm going to just yell and scream. I was just talking to a friend in LA whose little boy is just so upset. And I'm like, of course he is. People are losing their minds. People are having anxiety and we need to hold that space for them to process. And, and I think the greatest thing that I learned at Goddard was in my book, internal landscapes, chapter three, I write about Nietzsche and he says, everything everybody does is for power and control. And that was huge for Mm. me. And that even in death and in being a nurse, you're trying to control your process and it's messy and it's cyclical. And we're taught like, okay, here's where I make my money. Here's where I'm going to have my emotions. Here's where I'm going to have my sex life. Here's where I'm going to make money. And everything's so compartmentalized instead of looking at us holistically and saying, okay, I'm in a process and I need to flow in my process. And that's where the movement comes in. And that's where the, the visceral kinesthetic 
that's like, oh, I'm feeling this pain in my stomach. Well, what's it telling you? You know, you've got, you know, you're not dealing with that anxiety in that situation. And it's, but we're not, we're not taught to think that way. We're not taught to, we're taught to be in control. And that can be really, really damaging. Right. Because letting go isn't just forgetting about something no, like no, 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 at, at yeah. all. It's like going through the shit. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's exactly. going down dark into it and, you know, processing it in whatever way. And it ends up, mine does end up in words a lot, but it, I have to come from a place of not words first. And that's how, that's how we dream. That's how we dream. Mm-hmm. We don't dream in narrative. Right. I, to- I totally get why Casey's wife would not have processed this yet because this is very current. Like, and, you know, at some point I am hopeful in the future she will have some time off <laughs> that is not uh, because she has COVID, <laughs> like, but like actual real time where she can just process um or sit with it or whatever whatever ends up working for her to process Um, well casey if she ever wants to zoom with us she's welcome thank you i appreciate that john uh before we go john um we've mentioned house of alum a bunch of times but um can you just tell our audience what it is how we can get to it and um are are people constantly updating their their artist areas how 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 does that go yes um you go to www.alumarts.com and it's o-l-l-o-m arts.com mm-hmm. and you click on enter the house of alum and we really wanted it to be a house and in the house is rooms and people don't even have to be artists for example gloria castillo is a educator in new york city she's in the public school system and she's a cuban-american and working with her i've learned so much about the um, Orishas. And talking about Black Lives Matter, we've been talking about the Christian God, and she's talking about Yemaya and Oshun and the goddess of the river and the goddess of the ocean. Mm. And in her times of uh, trouble, we all got out a uh, bowl of water and made a circle in the water and tried to release all of our attention in the water, which is an Orisha tradition, which is out of Africa. And she, what she does to give love to her family is cook. So in the House of Alam, she is cooking a salmon for her family, but she makes it a ritual to Yemaya, the goddess of the ocean. Mm. So that is an example of John Alam going, okay, let's make cooking rituals. Because we're in our house, and I'm not saying you have to do this dance performance or write a play. Or, and people have loved her cooking. And she's going to do a new one for Oshun, which is the goddess of the river. That's an example of something that's not an art piece. Jendi Ryder uh, is the vice president of Winning Writers, which is an organization in Northampton, Massachusetts. She's been working with us for years. She's doing a tarot workshop in the House of Alam. We are already in talks with new people to put on new material. I have somebody who is autistic that I want to put up there. I have the most recent documentary film by Vaughn Williams. He's in Phoenix uh, called Into the Whole Project, which he won an award for in a Phoenix film festival about my last art installation about the whole project. So we're already getting new material. Everybody's welcome to visit. And the beautiful thing about it, of it not being a set show that's live, mm-hmm. I just told you about Gloria. She was taking her mother to the doctor and she was sitting in the waiting room and she was having a lot of anxiety. So she went on her phone, she hit enter the house of Alam, and she hit on Jim's garden. 
And Jim was a photographer and she was hitting on all these flowers and she was walking through the woods and being in downtown Manhattan, she doesn't have trees. And Mm -hmm. she said it totally calmed her. She goes, it was like therapy on the go. I loved it. She goes, I could just sit on my phone and go through these images of nature and it helped her find her center. And it was great. It was something that I'd never dreamed that the house of Alam could be. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was really beautiful because she was stressed about her mom and she just went on her phone and was going through the photos and it was a nonverbal thing. She was just looking at these photos of trees Casey, you know, your wife could do it at work, but it's like, it's not even, it's like, I don't want to look at John's dark matter. That's too much. It's like, you know, it's like, maybe I don't want to go there, but I want to look at Jim's photos. And that's it. She goes back to that. Like I look at Fiorella's um, piece, how to space time travel. She missed Uruguay and she was standing in her room in Queens and she had an editor in Uruguay bringing up the waves and the trees. Um, Shirley and Jeanette Hardy have been talking about being women of color and they wanted to put their pieces out there contact with people people contact me and some people are privates with me on zoom and then we decide when we're going to put it in the house of alum it came out of the house tradition in harlem which was in the 80s when a lot of gay people were kicked out from their families for being gay or trans or bi or queer and a lot of um gay people would Mm. make these balls and they would uh, dress up and have events and they would have a mother in their house and the mother would take care of them and Mm -hmm. kind of support them because they didn't have mothers And I think out of my own pain from my own family of origin, I've created my own family of choice. And I had somebody sent to me from North Dakota by director Jess Young. His name was James Covo. And now we call him Madam J because working with me, he just came out as a drag queen. And he kept calling me mother. Oh, wow. And it it stuck Mm. because I was giving them a house. I was giving them a home. All right. So so the House of Alam... Um, you said you modeled it or or it's inspired by the ballroom culture, the house, like the Harlem houses. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, was is that a scene that you have a lot of familiarity with, like, or were part of? How, how did that go? It happened organically out of two people that worked with me. Um, Shirley and Jeanette have been with me since 2006. They've been taking all my dance classes. and. Working with them and being in New York City, I've seen how race has been really, really huge. That's been my Mm -hmm. education in how people get treated. And working with them, Jeanette and I just, she did internal landscapes with me and she just did a new piece talking about coming out of bondage. Mm. And it has some quotes from Frederick um, Douglass. And it's a movement piece. It's out in the woods in in Inwood Forest. And and it, it does speak to slavery, both literal and emotional. And with them... Um, seeing how people have treated them, being women of color, that's been something that's been a branch, which led me not just to the queer community, but the people of color and not being representative enough. That's a big passion of mine is Mm -hmm. getting voices out there that wouldn't be seen or heard. Even museums that are in New York could be curated by an elitist group. And I think about, I think a lot about indigenous people, Mayans, Mm -hmm. think about Native American Indians, voices that aren't being heard right now. And I'm trying, that's a big passion of mine is getting, getting voices out there of marginalized people, regardless of what it is. And then working with Madam J, he's the one who started calling me mother. And that kind of stuck. And, you know, we would be in my uh, House of Alum lab class, which was every Saturday, which is more like a jazz, fun, creative, fun class. It's not really a technical class. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of happened organically. It was like, oh, mother. And it was like this house was developing and it just, it became this 
organic term that just kind of happened over time. And we love the visual of just a literal house with all these mm-hmm. different rooms. And I wanted people, I said, okay, how would you decorate your room? What would your room be about? And I didn't, and I wanted all the rooms to be different. And it was really exciting to me to kind of make that visual representation online of different houses. And also it, it shows that I've expanded past just dance, that it's all, mm-hmm. me- it's not just dance anymore. It's all mediums. I love that. Like I have, I have been to the house of all of them, um, website um and also like you were saying the benefit i think I, I don't remember how many years ago that was now but one of the things i loved in person was seeing how there's just like different kinds of artwork and different things i was just there for one night but i saw someone do poetry and live drawing and i, I mean it was just like so many different things and I love how you've re- recreated it for the virtual space. Um, and I hope everyone goes to visit it because it is really cool to see you. You are a graduate of interdisciplinary art and that it shows <laughs> in, <laughs> on, on alamart.com for sure. You are telling us about all the different artists that have come in and, and you you said that there are new things coming in all the time. And is, is this something that is a benefit? Are you going to have it up all year? How, how is it going to go? Yeah, we're not going to take it down because, because COVID's changed everything. Um, you, Amanda, have been at our live productions. We used to do them in the city every November. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done those live. People have come in from across the country every November. But since we're doing COVID, we wanted it to be accessible. We're leaving it up. We have board meetings quarterly talking about new material that we're putting in. I stay in touch with the people that are currently on that they're doing new work. For example, Fiorella's um, doing a new piece. There's a new woman in Massachusetts who's talking about people connecting to nature and how that's healing them now. So I'm constantly as a curator open to people emailing me. I've talked to a art therapist in Nova Scotia. So I'm, I'm constantly bringing in new people and the house is growing and it's, I'm trying to make it as accessible and easy for people as possible during COVID. So they just go to the website, click, and we didn't even want to charge anything. We wanted it to be free for people. That's awesome. Are different artists going to be changing their channels? Like, or, you know, like how, how do they, how do they submit to you? Like how, how does that work? They email me through the website. Um, some of them, Go to johnollum.com, which is J-O-H-N-O-L-L-O-M.com. And then some of them hit um, privates with me if people are doing Zooms with me. Hmm. Um, I've lowered my prices. I used to be $100 for a 90-minute session. I've lowered that because of COVID because more people, I just wanted to be accessible. Um, So people who do private Zooms with me, they just click on there. My email's also on there. If people have a piece that's done, they connect with me, people that have worked with me over years. Um, Jenny, for example, I'm help editing her manuscript. She's a new book that's coming out. So each person, I kind of take where they're at. I, I just tell them to email me, text me. If they wanted to Zoom with me, that's fine. And then the Zooms that we're doing every Wednesday, those are free too. Those are just, and those have been growing. And some people want to start more House of Alum Zooms. So I'm trying to give these people online portals. The Wednesday group is kind of like a support group and that we're kind of holding each other up and supporting each other. No charge for that at all. Private Zooms with me or another thing. And then the House of Alum, people just email me and they say, oh, I want to submit something. Or, you know, they may be in process and they want to say, you know, John, I'm working on something, but it'll be done in eight months. And I kind of 
talk with them. And then, you know, I, I try to, I want to make it easy for people because I think everybody being on Zoom and being online, it, it can be tricky for people. And I, I just want to make it to be just a resource right now for people. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, so thank you so much for joining us today, John. Uh, this conversation is awesome. I wish we had it years ago, but I'm glad we're having it now. <laughs> and yeah, great to talk to you. You're welcome, John. John, thank you so much for your time and taking us on the journey of your life experience and what you've um, come through and what you're continuing to work through and how you're sharing that with others and and how Goddard's been a, a piece of that and a through space for that um, and that process because uh, that truly is uh, what we're trying to do here and share with our Goddard alumni community and, and further out into the world. So I hope many um, take advantage of the work you are doing in that process and, and helping and and creating spaces for um, those who continue to learn and expand and break down those barriers and do so in a, in a qualitative um, way that's expressive um, and seeing that through visual mediums and and different expressions beyond just dance and and beyond um, other elements that are literary or, or whatever the case might be from that construct. And so I just wanted to thank you for your time. And it was really a wonderful uh, uh, opportunity to, to talk with you and to listen to your journey. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you also to Jim for helping you with setup. Um, I know it is challenging <laughs> and yes. super necessary at these times. Yes, so. yes the behind the scenes, man. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have your own tech person like just around. <laughs> just, I'm so blessed. I know. You well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Don. Thanks for listening to our episode with John Olam. For more information, please check out the show notes and visit olamart.com. Also, for more information on Alumni Council and to sign up, please visit goddardalumni.com. Current projects on the website include the Alumni Ambassador Program, where you can volunteer to speak with prospective students about your time at Goddard. Thanks for listening to Goddard in the World podcast. This podcast is a project of Goddard Alumni Council. It is produced and hosted by Casey Corona and Amanda Faye Laxon. It is edited by Amanda Faye Laxon. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or would like more information, please visit goddardalumni.com slash podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.